0: Sketches from Scripture presents After God's Own Heart A teaching series from the book of Samuel At the end of the book of Judges, the author writes, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel was a nation, but not a kingdom. The spiritual leaders were corrupt and aloof and the nation wandered far from God. Thanks to the desperate prayer of a woman named Hannah, her son, the prophet Samuel, became the leader, priest, and judge of Israel, and God called him to anoint a king, one who believed, acted, and ruled after God's own heart. Will a king unify an adulterous nation and bring them back to the Lord? This is the story of the book of Samuel. The book of Samuel begins with a desperate prayer by Hannah, and her prayer is, Lord, give me a son and I'll give him to you. The Lord grants her request and the son Samuel is born. That's where the book takes its name. First and second Samuel were originally one book. We get the first and the second, not because they are subsequent stories, but rather because the story was so long that it had to go on to two scrolls. And so you have the first scroll and the second scroll, uh, but it is one story. So uh, once Samuel is dedicated to the Lord and, and weaned, he's taken back to the temple where he grows up under the tutelage of Eli, who is not a very good priest, and his sons, who are horrible priests and horrible people. And the Lord begins speaking to Samuel. The Lord speaking, Giving a prophetic knowledge, giving visions, is not something that's happened in Israel for a long time. The tabernacle is at Shiloh, and uh, Eli is the priest. His sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are serving there as priests as well. The ark is sent into battle. They think uh, they're they're defeated by the Philistines in a small skirmish, and they think if we take the ark before us into battle, we will win. And so Hophni and Phinehas go off into battle with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord who is enthroned between the cherubim. And they lose to the Philistines. 30,000 Israelite foot soldiers killed. The Philistines capture the Ark. Hophni and Phinehas are killed, as the Lord told Samuel, as uh, another prophet, another man of God, told Eli at the end of chapter 2. And when Eli hears that his sons have been killed and that the Ark has been taken, he falls over backwards. And because he is... Overweight, he breaks his neck and kills himself. And his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, is having a baby, and she names the baby Ichabod, which means the glory is gone from Israel because she learns about her husband dying, her father-in-law dying, who's also the priest of Israel, and that the Ark has been captured. Meanwhile, the Philistines recognize the power of the Lord. When the Lord strikes them with plagues, that uh, consists of uh, mice or rats or something like that, that's probably eating all of their uh, the, their, their produce, their grain, their wheat, and uh, also strikes them with what many of our modern translations will call tumors. It's probably hemorrhoids or, or maybe even more likely some sort of genital boil. Again, because Dagon, their god, was a fertility god. And so when they put the Ark in the temple of Dagon, Uh, the statue of Dagon essentially bows before the ark until his head and hands are broken off. And then the men of Philistia acquire these tumors. And so they send the ark back, get it out of here. We don't want it. Whatever we've done to upset the Lord, we want to just get him out of here. So they send them to the people of Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh, they have sort of a makeshift worship service, which does they do not at all worship properly as they are in, instructed, but who knows who has been instructing them. Certainly it doesn't seem to have been Eli or his sons instructing anybody. And also, they're now dead. So they have some kind of odd worship service, and then they look at the Ark, look inside the Ark, and 70 people are struck dead because um, they treat the Ark in an improper way, according to commands of the Lord back in Exodus. So they want to get rid of it. So they send it to the people of kiriath jerom who are not Israelites, but they are allies of the Israelites. Back in the book of Joshua, they tricked um, Joshua into not destroying them. And Joshua said, OK, fine. Once he learned of their trickery, he said, well, we, we won't destroy you, but you have to be woodcutters and water carriers for us for the rest of your days. So the people of Kiriath-Jerim, the Gibeonites, they live among the Israelites. So they're not Israelites, but they are sort of allies. So the ark is put into uh, a home. The son of the, the man who owns the place, his name is Eleazar. And Eleazar watches over the ark and the ark lives there some 20 years. And that's where we ended Last night at the very beginning of chapter seven, letting us know that the Ark had been there for 20 years. So everything that we're going to talk about tonight is now 20 years later from that period. So we're going to get into chapter seven. We're going to breeze through chapters seven through 11. I'm going to read just a few sections. But if you have the Bible there in front of you, you can at least look at the chapter headings and kind of follow along. Remember, what we're trying to do in this series is not stop and analyze every single little story and make a lot of application. I will make some application in each lesson. But what we're trying to do is look at the storytelling of the book of Samuel. The idea being there's something about the narrative style. There's something in the storytelling that is going to teach us maybe how we ought to interpret the things that we're reading, the things that we're looking at. So. Let's go right to uh, the verses, we'll go right to 1 Samuel chapter 7, I've got the English Standard Version pulled up, and we will begin skimming. So right after we learned that the um, ark was lodged at kiriath Jerem for 20 years, as you see where it says Samuel judges Israel, so that was one of his roles, was not just essentially as priest, especially now that Eli and his sons are dead but um, that he is their judge. So in the same way you had the book of Judges just before Ruth and then now First and Second Samuel, um, he, he is continuing as judge of Israel. Um, this is not just like a judicial judge like we might think of, but this is someone who is um, essentially the, the spiritual leader of the nation and uh, helping with a lot of the major decisions. But they're, they're, they're the high point, they're the highest person, in the land, in the nation of Israel. So in chapter 7, Samuel calls everyone together to worship the Lord properly. So he's having them all gather here at Mizpah, as you can see. And the Philistines hear that everyone's gathered at Mizpah, and they come to attack. So Samuel calls them to continue to pray. All right. And so here he sets up the stone, this Ebenezer. Till now the Lord has helped us. And a thunderous noise sends the Philistines into confusion, and Israel defeats them. And so um, what do we learn from this? Well, remember, when we see things that are the same in a story, it's for comparison's sake most of the time. So what you're about to see happen here with Samuel, now that he is an adult, some, some 20 years has passed. And so how, however old he was in chapter 6, now he's 20 years older. He's an adult now. And he's in charge now. So he's no longer subservient to Eli as a young boy or a teenager or whatever. He's he's, a, he's an adult. He's a man. He has his own sons. And he is judging Israel. So we're going to see a lot of comparisons to Eli. Samuel and Eli, the things that Eli did and the way that Eli responded, or Eli and his sons, and the things that Samuel does in response. So when the Philistines, back in um, chapter four, first win that little skirmish where they kill 4,000 Israelites, how do Eli and his sons respond? Well, the sons come and get the Ark, rip the Ark away from where it's supposed to be in the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle and lead it into battle and they try to do it out of out of might and out of power, and they lose. What does Samuel do? Samuel instead says, let's pray. Let's pray to the Lord. The Lord will fight for us. And sure enough, there's this thunderous noise that seems to come from nowhere. The Philistines are uh, scattered into confusion and Israel is able to defeat them. So what we should learn from this is when there are things that are similar in a story, we look for what's different. So when two similar situations happen, and there's someone who is sort of at the center of those situations. Perhaps how they respond to those situations is different. This idea of comparing and contrasting really begins way back in Genesis. Uh, we see it a lot. We, we see it with Abraham and Lot, even. But it really begins with you know Jacob. We have Jacob and Esau, and then you have uh, his sons all contending and struggling with each other, right? You have Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah. So there's always this dichotomy, this this struggle, this one or the other. And so the storyteller is drawing on that here by sort of comparing these stories. And remember, as you're reading this straight through as a story, these situations are happening back to back. So 20 years has passed in real life. But in a story, um, just like we looked at the Philistines uh, battle last night, and then we're looking at it again tonight in a very short span of time, uh, that's that's the storyteller has done that on purpose so that we will compare these two things. So, uh, so, let's go on. So, this is the last that we'll hear from the Philistines for a short while. And we see Samuel's legacy as judge and priest in Israel down here at the end of chapter 7. But then, in chapter 8, Israel demands a king. Let's read the first nine verses here. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us. Like all the nations, but the king, uh, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. This Paul's right there. We'll come back and read the next couple of verses in just a second. But I want to point out just uh, a couple of things going on in this uh, section. So it says that Samuel has sons, just like Eli had sons. Also, Samuel's sons are bad leaders. Just like Eli's sons were bad leaders. They don't appear to be quite as bad as Hophni and Phinehas, but they're still bad. They're taking bribes and perverting justice because he sent them out to be judges over Israel. So, what's the difference here? Well, there's a couple of differences. First of all, they're not priests serving at the tabernacle. Well, for one thing, they can't. Shiloh is not mentioned anymore. Shiloh doesn't exist anymore. Once the ark leaves and Israel's is defeated, it seems clear that Shiloh was destroyed and certainly in the in the 20 years since it seems that Shiloh was destroyed or dismantled we don't hear about Shiloh anymore and uh, maybe we'll, we'll we'll talk a little more about that but uh, Beersheba where his sons are judges is not part of the circuit where Samuel travels to do his judging that we just skimmed over at the end of chapter seven. So at the end of chapter seven, where we we see his legacy as judge and priest, and we see all the places that he travels to, to judge, there's like a little circuit there where he goes around and spends his time just hearing the different things that he needs to provide wisdom for, pray about. Beersheba is not part of that circuit. Beersheba is way down to the south. This reminds me a lot of when Lot chooses the Jordan Valley. Not only does he want to be close to fertile land for his livestock, he wants to be close to people there are cities and settlements along the water and he wants to be close to the world and we know that because the next time we hear about lot he's in sodom he's living in the city and so i see something happening here with samuel's sons we don't know how he tried to raise them we don't know what failures and successes he had but at some point they he appointed them as judges and they went very far away from the spiritual center of israel which at this point is in Ramah. Why is it in Ramah? Well, if you'll recall from chapter one, this is where Samuel was born. This is where his family's from. And so once Shiloh was apparently destroyed, it appears that uh, Samuel has set up his um, uh, set up uh, camp. Basically, the capital of Israel is now in Ramah. That's where he's going to do, base all of his operations from. And so his sons are very far away from Ramah. They're down in Beersheba they're really too far away from from him to for him to now uh, parent them well and they're far enough removed that if they get into trouble or if they are tempted and 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 get into bribery and sin they're a little far away for accountability and and judgment and that may be by design they may have rebelled and left we we really don't know we we can only speculate but we do have to point out the differences they're not sleeping with women at the door to the tabernacle, right? They are way far away from the spiritual center of Israel. They're way far away from their father. They're away from his influence and they're off doing their own thing. So uh, let's go back to the scriptures now. So they say, "Now, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. In other words, all the other nations have a king. We want a king as well. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king, to judge us, and Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, "Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. In other words, listen to them and and do what they ask, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, from being king over them." So you see that Samuel is displeased by it because they're asking for a king to judge them, and of course Samuel's thinking, "Well, I'm judging you. That's my job," and the Lord says, "Hey, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me." Uh, And of course, it's the Lord that appoints Samuel in the first place. Uh, Verse eight: According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice; only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king, who shall reign over them. So God says, "Listen to them; give them what they ask for, but give them a warning." So Samuel warns them, and he repeats a lot of the things that Moses says, here's what's going to happen if you have a king. But in verse 19, we see that they don't listen. Verse 19, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like the nations, and that our king may judge us, and go out before us, and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. So now we go into to chapter 9. In chapter 9, we cut away from the story of Samuel and we find a young man named Saul. And so uh, we meet Saul. Saul is sent out to find his father's lost donkeys. Unable to find them, Saul and his servant look for the seer. They've heard of this seer or this prophet, and so they go out seeking him. Of course, the person they're referring to is Samuel, so it's very interesting that they don't really know about Samuel, but they um, know of some kind of seer, some kind of prophet. right? And so they go, uh, he and his servant, to find him. So we'll pick up in verse 14. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up, to the high place. The high place would be where they were currently worshiping God since there was no other place to do it at this time. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel. So a little flashback here, we're going back to see what happened to Samuel. Tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. So again, we have the Lord giving Samuel some prior knowledge of something that's going to happen. This is something that has been happening in Samuel's entire life since he was a young boy living near the tabernacle with Eli we see that this is continuing to happen into his adulthood. Uh, Continuing in verse 16, you shall anoint him. That is the man you will meet from Benjamin. That's, of course, going to be Saul. You shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go, and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? And so Saul is very surprised that he has been called upon for anything. He's just kind of a farm boy out looking for his father's donkeys. He goes to seek some help from a prophet who says, Hey, the donkeys were found not long after you left, but the reason that you're out on this trek is actually uh, because I need to meet you so that I can anoint you as king. So he's going to tell him about all this. So Sam treats Saul like a VIP, gives him a fancy dinner, puts him up for the night, and the next morning as they're leaving, Samuel sends Saul, Saul's servant on ahead and holds Saul back to give him the Lord's special special message. And that's what we find in chapter 10. So he anoints him with oil. He declares that the Lord has said that he will be king, then gives him three signs he will see in order to prove that this is the case. So uh, notice what happens here. This is um, kind of important if you're interested in fully understanding the role of Jesus in the New Testament. Saul gives, uh, I'm sorry, Samuel gives Saul a prophecy. Here's something that's going to happen in the future. This is a capital P prophecy, right? Here's something Uh, that's going to happen in the future. What he says is, I am anointing you. The Lord has called you to do a thing. But here are three things that you are going to see once you leave here. When you see those three things, you'll know that what I'm telling you is the truth. So he's giving Saul three signs he will see in the world so that he will believe the thing that he can't see, the fact that he is to be anointed as a king, that he's been chosen to be the king by the Lord. Consider how Jesus does this when he tells um, the crippled person, hey, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees say, well, who is this that can forgive sins? And Jesus knows their thoughts and says, I'm sure you're wondering, how would we know? How would we know if your sins are really forgiven? Well, so that you know that I have the power to forgive sins. He turns to the man and says, take up your mat and walk. And the man is healed from his infirmity, takes up his mat and walks and Jesus does a physical sign that everyone can see so that they trust him about the thing that they can't see, that the sins are forgiven. This also ties in with baptism. Okay, The choice to trust and follow Jesus, the choice to uh, leave sin behind, to repent, as we've been talking about since Genesis, but in particular last night, to repent, to turn around, to change your heart and mind, to repent and to trust and follow Jesus, that is something that cannot be seen. So it is paired, it is married with a physical event, baptism, a symbolic event that can be seen. And they go together. You don't have one without the other. And so that's what we see in the New Testament. And we see that this is a very common thing that happens all through here. And people that want to try and separate those things are doing something the scripture doesn't really seem to care anything about. So um, here you see a great example of a prophet saying something that maybe can't be seen, like, hey, you're supposed to be the king, and then following that with signs that will be visible. When you see these things that I'm predicting in the future, then you'll know I was also right about the thing that you can't see. Okay, I hope that made some sense. Let's continue to read. So he tells him about these three things that he will see in order to prove that the Lord said he'll be king. And then he sends him on his way. And so then we get down to verse 9 of chapter 10. So we're in chapter 10, verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, that's Saul. When Saul turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. Another version says God changed his heart. Right? This is about repentance, right? Your heart turning around, changing. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And um, so we see everything that uh, Samuel predicted now is... Uh, coming true, and we could go on, and we could read the rest of it, but you, you get the point. Uh, again, compare this to uh, Acts. I believe it is um, uh, chapter ten. We got the Cornelius, got the Gentile, and he's coming to Peter, and Peter's had this vision that has said, "Hey, you know, Gentiles are going to be part of this promise. They're going to be grafted in, as to use Paul's language, they're going to be grafted in to the tree of Israel." Peter has a very hard time accepting this because he's a good Jew and Jews know that Jews and Gentiles don't associate with each other. And he has a very hard time accepting this, even with this miraculous vision. And so when he sees Cornelius receive the spirit and begin speaking in tongues, it's very similar to this prophesying, then he understands the spirit of the Lord. And so what prevents me from baptizing them? In other words, I now understand, I get it now. Uh, I see that they are prophesying. So this very same thing is happening here with Samuel. The storyteller in Acts is no doubt drawing upon the Jews' knowledge of this very story right here. Because think about it: the Book of Acts was written largely to a lot of Christian Jews to remind to show them, no, oh, no, Gentiles get to be part of this. That's part of the good news here. And so they would need some evidence, very, very similar to what we see happening here with Saul, that God is very much a part of this process. God approved, God powered, etc. So um, they uh, head on back home uh, after these uh, signs come to pass. So um, now the Lord uh, calls Israel together again in order to show that a king has been chosen. And they do so by casting divine lots. And so it's, you know, Benjamin, and then it gets down to uh, the the, the son of Kish, you know, the house of Kish where, where Saul is from. And finally gets down to Saul. And when that happens, no one can find him. And so we're here in verse 21. But when they saw him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. (laughs) So I don't know. This is really funny to me that they have this giant, you know, sort of uh, Hunger Games kind of lottery. And now they're looking for Saul and he cannot be found. Nobody can find him. And God says, he's right over there. And so he's hiding among the baggage. And so they, they pull him out. And so then in chapter 11, uh, well, of course, we see here that he's anointed and, and made king. And we also see uh, down here at the end, some people despise him because uh, as he goes home to Gibeah, you know, people from Gibeah just look at him and say, well, we know this guy. How's this guy going to be king over us? This is our neighbor. This is just some guy. Um, so Saul defeats the Ammonites. So this is chapter 11. About a month later, King Nahash, by the way, Nahash means serpent. So King Nahash of Ammon attacks an Israelite town. And so the town sends for help. And so we'll just read verses four through eight here of chapter 11. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. What? This guy is king of Israel. And what does he do? He goes home and just keeps working on the farm. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. So um, the Spirit of the Lord comes on Saul. And so Saul, who's been kind of, I don't know, he's just kind of been just a guy. He's just been a little wishy-washy. Now, all of a sudden, the Spirit comes upon him, and he does this really powerful thing. And so they go into battle, and they win. Saul is officially installed as king and everyone is filled with joy as the last verse says they all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Okay. So that was our quick tour through chapters 7 through 11. Just going to talk about a few things, make a few applications and we'll be done tonight. <clears throat> so Samuel's set up shop in Ramah because that's where his family's from. This is further evidence that Shiloh has been destroyed. Uh, Maybe the tabernacle has been destroyed with it. Once the ark leaves and essentially God leaves Israel, in in, in a sense, what's the tabernacle for at that point? It may have been plundered by the Philistines. We really don't know. Uh, You might ask, I showed the pictures last night where you could see the wall. If Shiloh was destroyed, why are the foundations of the walls still there? Well, uh, think about this. If you're in a building that's made of stone and you're the enemy and you're trying to tear this building down, you basically have to pick it up and tear it down stone by stone. You don't have any big machines that you can knock it down with, right? So you get up on top of the wall and you pick up a rock and you throw it down and you get up on top of the wall and you pick up a rock and you throw it down and you just keep throwing down stones to the right and to the left until at some point the pile of stones on either side of the wall are the same height as the place where you're standing, right? So you're obviously not going to pick up a stone and throw it up. Like, that would just be a waste of your energy. Why would you do that? And so you just leave this big pile of level rubble. Well, when archaeologists come along later, after all these layers and layers of cities have been built on top of these ruins, as archaeologists come along later, they dig out and they pull these layers out, and they are able to see the chaos of just rock laying around everywhere and the ordered walls and foundations and doorways that are still in place. And so you have, you know, a couple of feet of walls and the floors that still remain. And so they're able to sort of separate all that out. That's why when you see a lot of archaeological digs, they're all like about this big, because what they're finding is just the very bottom of these homes that remain before everything was collapsed. And it was just rubble on top of it. So that's how we were able to see Shiloh today. But it appears it was totally destroyed, probably by the Philistines back in chapter four. We see that Samuel's sons aren't much better than Eli's. Again, this is a chance to compare and contrast Samuel and Eli. Uh, cont- uh Comparing, Eli has his sons doing the evil things right under his nose and doesn't seem to do much about it. Samuel, his sons are far away, and they either stray because they're far away, they rebel from their father and go far away, or he sends them far away because they will not listen. We can only speculate, but we see the differences that are happening there, and their outcomes are very different also. Uh, We see that the people wanted a king to judge them. Well, what's the problem here? Well, did they already have a king? Yes, the Lord. Did they already have a judge? Yes, the Lord and Samuel. Did they already have someone who would fight their battles for them? Yes, the Lord. And yet they say, we want a king who will judge us and who will fight our battles for us. So uh, not only will the Lord... Uh, fight for his people, just like he does against uh, the Philistines in chapter 7. But he'll raise up leaders for them and put them in authority, people like Samuel. And even though they cry out for a king, which is against what uh, God really wants, he relents and chooses someone to be king. But just as it's always true that God will raise up spiritual leaders, it's also always true that God's people will always rebel against these leaders. This is every Bible story that we see, right? So the Lord says, listen to them, grant them a king. By the way, just a reminder that if God gives you what you ask for, not always a blessing. Um, again, reference Numbers chapter nine, back from the wandering series, when everyone wanted quail, God said, okay, you want quail? I'll give you quail. You can go back and ch- check out that story. Now, we got two names here, Samuel and Saul. Now, in Hebrew, it's kind of Shemuel and Shaul. You hear that they're very similar, right? So, The Shem plus L is where we get the Shemuel, Samuel. And Shem actually means name. It's kind of what that means, or like I am called. But Hannah says his name means asked of the Lord. So it's kind of a stretch there, but maybe she's kind of saying, I called upon the Lord for this child. So you can kind of see how that would be roughly the same. But she says uh, his name means asked of the Lord. Sha'al, Saul, literally means asked. So now you see again, Something we don't see in English, but something that we do see in the Hebrew, what the narrator is doing through the names. By showing us these names, they're comparing Samuel and Saul. Samuel asked of the Lord, and Saul asked. You see the difference there? So in the same way that Hannah asked the Lord for a son, the people asked for a king, but they didn't ask the Lord. They asked Saul and I'm mean, sorry, they asked Samuel and when Samuel told him, hey, you don't really want that. They didn't listen to him. They said, give us one anyway. So uh, the writer is already setting you up. There with some irony between asked of God and just asked. So Hannah asked God for a son, dedicated him to God before she received an answer. It was part of her request. The dedication given to me, I'll give him to you. Remember that? Israel, however, asks Samuel for a king for themselves, and despite his warning, reject both Samuel and God in the process. And so Saul's name becomes an irony, whereas Samuel's name remains true to his character. By asking for a king, people are not only ignoring God, but also his law. You can go back and look at Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Look at Leviticus 20, 22 through 26 or so. We won't read those tonight. But uh, one thing that we see is that Israel is not supposed to be like other nations. Israel is supposed to be peculiar from other nations. But what is their uh, request? We want to be like the other nations. We want to have a king like the other nations have. Give us a king so we can be like the other nations. But the problem is Israel is not supposed to be like the other nations. You see, in other nations, the king was God. But in Israel, their God was king. So just like ejecting the ark from the tabernacle, Israel is effectively renouncing their covenant with the Lord. They're throwing away what it means to be holy. You can compare this to the New Testament assertion uh, by Israel's leadership when they stand before Pilate and say, We have no king but Caesar. So this lesson is called After God's Own Heart. and We know the person we haven't mentioned yet, the person we haven't got to yet in Scripture. We know who that refers to if you're familiar with the story. But but before we have him, we have Saul. Saul is not the king after God's own heart. Saul is the king after the people's own heart. He's tall and strong. His head taller than everybody else. He's good looking, right? He was a picture of what people thought could save and protect them. He was from a wealthy family. They were a, a humble family. They were a small family, but it turns out they're kind of a wealthy family. But he he didn't even know who Samuel was, didn't seem to have any sort of spiritual leaning or leadership going on in his life. Much of what Samuel does or predicts for Saul not only proves him to be king, but also a a priest of sorts, an anointed one. Uh, By the way, the term Christ, the term Messiah, just simply means anointed one, chosen one. Saul is a chosen one. Saul was meant to represent the people, not just nationally, politically, and militarily, but also morally and spiritually. By being anointed by God. And yet Saul doesn't really seem to take any confidence in what the Lord's done for him. In fact, his first response is to hide. Right? Contrast this to Samuel's first response, which is to pray to the Lord, right? When all the people come up against him and say, Hey, your son, stink, give us a king. He doesn't fight back, he doesn't run and hide instead. He goes and he prays, right? Uh, so Saul's first response is to hide, then he just kind of keeps his mouth shut, and then he just goes about his old life. You know, he doesn't really say anything about being king. He just goes back to Gibeon's working the farm. And it takes the spirit of God completely taking him over before he does anything for Israel. So what are some applications we can make here in our final few minutes? Well, God will fight for his people and he will raise up leaders to lead them. And so anytime in scripture, you see God doing something, he's always doing it through his people. Right. So if he's put uh, <clears throat> and we see that God puts his spirit in them, puts a spirit on them to empower them to be able to do these things like he even does with Saul here towards the end uh, here in chapter 11. So the good news is if you've been baptized, if you have made the commitment to trust and follow Jesus, and you've been baptized and you've received the forgiveness of sins and you've received the gift, which is the Holy Spirit. That spirit is in you. That spirit is upon you. That power of that spirit is with you and working with you. So God fights for his people and raises up leaders to lead them. That's you. You're one of those people. So unlike Saul, you should take confidence in what the Lord has done for you and what the Lord wants to do through you. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10 talk about how we were dead as an enemy of God, but God came in and redeemed us and gave us a new life so that we can do the good works that he's prepared for us in advance. So the Lord has saved you and he saved you to go out and do some things On his behalf. Now, people set their hopes on the best that they can see. So our job as an ambassador of Christ is to show them or remind them of the higher hope. If the best that they can see is just sort of the physical thing right in front of them, then that's as far as their aspirations and their expectations and their hope is going to go. But if the best thing that they can see is a true picture of who the Lord is and who Jesus is, then their hope is going to go much further and go much deeper. So our job is to remind them of that higher hope. So when things are rough, when, um, when things are lonely, when, when you're hurt, depressed, broke, disrespected, forgotten, when, uh, times are tough, when, uh, times are uncertain and unprecedented, two words that I would like to not <laughs> hear for a long time very quickly, very soon from now, um, When the best that you can see is only what's right in front of you, believing is a very bold thing to do. Waiting on the Lord is a very bold thing to do. Taking matters into your own hands is is arrogant and is foolish and is dangerous. When I first got to film school, I had spent two years in college at Memphis and was very involved in the Christian Student Center. When I got to film school in North Carolina, there was no such group there. And most of the students were not Christian And the few who did proclaim some kind of Christianity, did not spend much time practicing it while they were there. And there were a couple of experiences that I had within just really the first week or two of film school that very quickly let me know the worldview you have, no one else here has. They don't understand it. They don't like it. They don't want it. And I realized it was going to be a very tough four years for me, and it was spiritually. A lot of that was from my own decisions. The first decision that I made being a terrible one, I did what Saul did and hid I looked and saw that everything around me was different, and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to put my head down, do my thing, go to church on Sundays, teach the junior high class, and just learn how to make movies and get out of here. And that's pretty much what I did, and it just kind of went into survival mode. Uh, Some of you may be spending self-isolation the last two months in survival mode. Hey, there's not a lot I can do. I'm just going to put my head down. Um, live life as best I can and and make it through. We just go through in survival mode. We just kind of hide. We don't take advantage of the opportunity. And um, when you're in survival mode, one of the things that you do is you just sort of reach for whatever or whoever is nearby to pacify yourself. Let me just, uh, I'm hurting, or I'm lonely or whatever. Let me just sort of sate this a little bit by reaching for something. And then some of us, you know, we're not slaves to sin, but we're not helping anybody either. So um, we might just put our head down and get into survival mode and maybe we don't reach out and become slaves to sin like Samuel's sons or like uh, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. But we don't, we don't help anybody. We're just kind of like Saul. We just kind of go home and go back to the farm and don't live up to what we've been called to do by helping other people, by doing good works, by sharing Christ with others. God wants to save your lost friends. If you truly believe that they are lost, then you truly know the implications of that. And if you're not doing anything about that, Um, then the, I mean, indirectly, that means that you you don't care. You don't care about them. You don't love them. God wants you to be part of saving your lost friends. God's going to save them, but he's going to send you to make the introduction. Uh, He saved you. He put his spirit in you and he put you near them to get it done. So the Lord has made you into a new person. He's given you a new heart. Are you going to accept that fearful responsibility? Uh, I want to just address one New Testament passage. It's the 2nd Corinthians 5. I'm not going to have it on the screen, so you can turn there if you want. 2nd Corinthians 5. And I'd love to read all of chapter 5, but we're, 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 out of time. So, uh, let me just scroll down here and begin in verse 16. I really recommend when we get done tonight reading all of chapter 5 because you'll see there are so many parallels to the story of Samuel that we've, that we've already read right here in just this one chapter of 2nd Corinthians about um, uh, tents and the Lord and covenants and judgment and all kinds of things, all kinds of words that we've used in this uh, lesson series, you will see right here in chapter five. But I want to pick up right here at the end of chapter five and verse 16 and into just the beginning of chapter six. So this is 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 16. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Second Corinthians five sixteen. From now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective, even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. In other words, yeah, we, we might have known Christ in real life, but he, he's gone now. So we don't, now we know him in a, a spiritual way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In other words, he's been given a new heart. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ, through the anointed one, and has given us the ministry reconciliation. He's given us something to do. He's given us judgment to go out on circuit and give. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. In other words, we're taking a message from God to other people, That's called prophecy. When you take the word of the Lord to someone else, you are being a prophet, little p, prophet, right? Be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Chapter six, uh, working together with him, we also appeal to you. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, don't just go back home to the farm. For he says, At an acceptable time, I listened to you. At just the right time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. See, behold, look, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. So I'm going to leave you with these two questions. Today is the day. Today's the day to let go of that old life. And if you're clinging to something out of fear or discouragement, how are you going to start letting it go? How are you going to let it go today? Second question, the time is now. You have a fearful responsibility. You have many lost friends. God has raised you up, put his spirit in you, and made you a new person. Sent you out as an ambassador with the ministry of reconciliation. Why do you wait to bring others to what you have found? Who will you tell the good news of Jesus Christ to this weekend? Think of a name. Who will you share it with this weekend? Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.